You're listening to Like Flint Radio, part of the Revelations Radio Network. Well, welcome to Like Flint Radio. You can find us on the web at likeflintradio.com. I'm your host, GK. On the line with me in the mother city in Cape Town, I have Andy Tade. Good morning, Andy. Good, very it's nice early. and early for you. Yeah, good, very early morning to you. <laughs> uh, how are things going your side? Uh, very good. Again, we're doing one of our three time zones because obviously it's afternoon for me and our guest today is going to be Mike Heiser and it's evening for him. But before we talk to Mike, I just want to say that uh, both Andy and I have been former students of Mike's. I did Mike's first Greek with Heiser several years ago uh, before Memra started. And then I went on to do a course with Rick once Memra had started and really, really enjoyed that. And I know you did one too, didn't you, Andy? You did a course at with Memra, didn't you? Yeah, I did a few, although I doubt Mike would remember me much <laughs> because <laughs> I was very much hidden. But um, I absolutely loved it. I did the series on Enoch, which was really mm-hmm. cool. I think there were three modules, if I remember correctly. And I did one or two on uh, biblical theology. I think it was Genesis 1 and then uh, Creation and the Persistence of Evil was the book for the next one. I just can't remember what the course was called. But it was really cool. And um, I'd have to say, like, the very first one that I did was, I think, Genesis 1. And I just remember for the very first week, I was very, very nervous, as I generally am anyway. But I just remember how my head just hurt. It literally hurt for one week, just (laughs) trying to assimilate the shift in thinking. But I think once it happened, I was just blown away. I I actually do miss that, I must say. And obviously, as we introduce Mike, we can chat a bit about that too. I know now Memra is just really focusing on the biblical languages side. But um, that was certainly something I enjoyed thoroughly. Well, let's get to that. Let's bring Mike on. Welcome to the show, Dr. Mike Heiser. How are you, Mike? Very good. Thanks for having me. Uh, primarily, we're going to talk about your book, The Portent, Mike. But um, before we get to that, for the sake of our those people in our audience who may not know who you are, and there won't be many, but just for the sake of those who don't, can you tell us a bit about yourself and what it is that you do? Sure. I, I'm a biblical scholar by training. I have a uh... PhD in Hebrew Bible, and when you do that, you have to take all sorts of other dead languages, <laughs> uh, you know, that you associate with that part of the world at that time, like hieroglyphs and Phoenician and Ugaritic and all that stuff. And so I, I I have that as far as degrees. I have a degree in ancient history too, and I taught uh, biblical studies and biblical theology and some languages for twelve years or so. I I still do a little uh, online teaching. Um, for uh, credit-granting institutions. I do a little bit of that, but most of the time now my, my uh, livelihood is really, uh, my main job is, is working at Logos Bible Software. Um, mm-hmm. And so my, my lofty title there is Scholar in Residence, which <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> I'm, al- I'm allowed to get in the building, I guess, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I... I this year, I've done uh, a lot of writing, uh, specifically the the book that's going to come out in March, uh, The Unseen Realm. So I, I actually got paid at work to do my book, which is really kind of a unique wow. situation. But uh, prior to that, I did all sorts of different you know database stuff with ancient languages, and I supervised scholars to create certain products like interlinears of the Septuagint and you know that that's basically just herding cats with PhDs. It's it's <laughs> it was a, a bit of a challenge because uh, their scholars are prone to behave just like you know students are when they're in that situation. You have to stay after them to do their work. Uh, but it, it's fun. It's a it's a great um, academic job that you know is is quite different from the classroom, but related. Yes, I can imagine that. And I know that uh, in your past, you have been a lecturer at university, haven't you? So you, you've had some experience oh, yeah. with students. Oh, yeah. I, I've, I've, I've taught 12, 15 years, most of it, uh, most of that in, on the green campus, as we like to say. Uh, so in the classroom, uh, mm-hmm. I've, I've been online, again, with other institutions for probably close to 10. Uh, so I'm, I'm a bit acclimated to that. Again, I 
I, I still teach in the classroom a little bit at a local community college, but that's more or less like, hey, we have a hole in the calendar this year. Can you do this X Y Z class? And it's right. It's a yes or no. So you know, I I, I like it. I mean, I like being in the classroom. It, it, it's fun. I just don't like the grading. You know, that, that's the part I always dread. But you know, you really can't do do the one without the other. That's right. No, my uh, my wife is a teacher, and that's the time of year that she also dreads. Um, <laughs> now, the main reason we've got you on, Mike, is to talk about The Portent, um, which is your latest novel in a series called The Facade Saga. But really, I think we probably, before we get to The Portent even, we need to have a bit of a background on The Facade. Now, I have to confess, I haven't read it, but Andy has. So... What do we need to know, do you think, if you don't mind me throwing it to Andy, Mike, Andy, what do you think we need to know before we read The Portent? Well, really, I mean, the background to The Portent is the facade because that's how the yeah. whole saga yeah. starts, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I suppose, I mean, I don't know, there, there's probably many ways we could take the line of questioning because the facade in itself is just so full of so many different aspects that we are introduced to. And I also have to to just say, you know, I had the facade for quite a few years in my Kindle and never got to read it. And I think that the one reason for it was just because I was quite nervous of mingling the idea of science fiction with kind of where could this go, Um, particularly because there are just so many kind of crazy theories out there. I knew, though, that Whatever Mike had written, it would be grounded. But I had avoided it for quite some time just because I didn't quite know where it might go. And um, <laughs> I do realize that's probably a real cop-out, but it's the truth <laughs> from my perspective. And I don't know if you probably get that kind of thing, Mike. Um, you know, different people just being a little bit nervous of this area. But it's something that, you know, you've really embraced. And I don't know, where, where did your fascination for this kind of research into UFOs and in, into, the just say, the science fiction type? thing uh, come from? Where did that come from? Well, I mean, since you've read it, you know that really what I'm doing in, in both uh, books, and, and you're correct, the, the, the portent is a true sequel right. uh, to the facade, so you really have to have read the facade first. Um, you know, I'm trying to piggyback uh, certain theological ideas, and really, you know, even larger than that, sort of a... Uh, you know, kind of worldview layers uh, on the back of fiction. And I think the best way to do that is to make it faction. And so there's a lot of research that, that goes into uh, the fiction I'm doing. Mm. Uh, for the, the, the portent, for instance, that, it, that took me a full year mm. uh, just to read through material and, and outline and try to streamline a set of ideas that I wanted to... Uh, to make part of the story and, you know, part of the dialogue and, and really, really part of what the reader has to think about uh, as they, you know, track through the story. But my, my interest in, in all these things, and it's much wider than, than uh, UFO stuff. I mean, the, the facade is, is focused on that because uh, the fundamental question of that book is, you know, what would the impact be on a very traditional uh, biblical-centered Judeo-Christian faith, if there was a genuine extraterrestrial reality, what 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 would that do? And so the, the the main character sort of gets thrust into a situation where that that question becomes more than a theoretical one. He 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 has to uh, confront that, but unbeknownst to him, at least at the beginning, but then it unravels the. He's confronted with all sorts of misdirections, and by the end of the book, you know more about what's going on than than he does, but uh, the facade is just a good name for it. I'll probably have to leave it there, but the reason it, it, it focused on that, uh, again, the UFO stuff, but it, it, it's, it begins certain threads that get picked up in the portent, and the portent includes this one, but it's it's much wider. But the reason I, I was sort of focused on that was I've always had an interest in you know, anything sort of old and strange. Um, you know, I, I was into ancient studies even before I, I became a believer, you know, a follower of Christ. And, and it, once I did that, it, there was sort of this natural segue because the, the Bible itself sort of fits into uh, antiquity. It has a central play, central role to play. There's lots of strange passages, lots of strange ideas floating around in the world at the time. And 
you know, that, you know, was a sort of a contributing factor, but really anything in, in that orbit, anything sort of outside, you know, the, the bounds of, you know, what would be, I guess, considered normal. So paranormal, parapsychology, I just found it interesting and I, and I still find it interesting uh, in part because the kind of things that, that those issues tap into are inherently theological questions. You know, who is God? What's the nature of God? What is God like? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what about this other world that we can't see that we know is out there? Um, you know, why aren't we atheist materialists? You know, what is consciousness? Why are we here? What's the purpose? You know, all, all sorts of big picture, you know, kind of questions. And so I, I really had an interest uh, in all of that. But when I was in graduate school, uh, it happened to be, you know, in the late 90s, uh, mid to late 90s on into the early years of, of, you know, the 2000s. 1997 was sort of a pivotal year for me as as someone who had always had a casual interest in this stuff and then, you know, sort of amping it up a little bit. That was the 50th anniversary of the Roswell incident. And I remember sitting uh, late night when I'm in, when I was in grad school, I was a security guard. That was one of my three or four jobs, hmm. uh, to go through grad school. And I used to listen to coast to coast AM all the time. And I remember them replaying part of the CNN press conference that had taken place in Roswell about the 50th anniversary. And I had read enough material on that incident to know that this was actually the Air Force's third explanation for this. And that in and of itself was was sort of suspicious. Hmm. But there was a reporter in the press conference when the the Air Force colonel who was conducting the the conference, his name was Colonel Haynes, uh, when he was talking about, well, all these stories about bodies recovered and aliens, this this was crash test dummies and so on and so forth. And, And a reporter asked, well, you know, how could that be? Because by the the Air Force's published report, you know, prior to this one, the Air Force said that those dummies were only used in the early 1950s. And so this is 1947. So there's this disconnect. You know, how how does that work? And, and, and when he asked that question, I knew he was right. I thought that Colonel Haynes would say something like, oh, you're right. You know, I misspoke. Sorry about that. And sort of back up and, and have another go at it. But what he actually said and I, I went out and got the transcript because I couldn't believe it. What he actually said was, no, uh, you know, it, it was in the early 1950s. And, and what we think happened is that all of the witnesses you know, to the Roswell event, we think uh, under, have undergone time compression. Hmm. And, I, and I'm, I'm listening to this like, what is, and then, you know, what is that? And then the reporter said exactly that, exactly what I was thinking. What is that? And he, he explained it by saying that they all sort of thought what they were remembering was 1947 when it was actually the, ni- the early 1950s. And it's like, I mean, you've got newspaper headlines from 1947 about this event. And, and the answer was so stupid, just so nonsensical that when I heard it, I thought, you know, for some reason, somebody in the military industrial complex that we've all come to sort of know and love, uh, somebody wants to keep this myth alive. Hmm. It's useful for something. Because otherwise, they would just do a better job than this, because this is just absurd. And, and that sort of really, you know, sort of drew me, you know, m- more deeply into the whole subject, because it just, again, was just so absurd. Somebody wants this to live, and there's got to be a reason for it. And it, it just sort of took me, uh, you know, further into it. And then when I, when I had a, a year that I could, could write, which would have been the first year of my dissertation, I wanted to sort of, I was kind of burned out and I thought, you know, I'm just going to take some time and do something I've always wanted to do. And that is write a novel. And that became the facade. And and this material was the centerpiece of it. Mm. I know on the cover of the two books, the facade and the portent, you actually do mention there how all the the documents are real. Um, So Mm. there is a lot of factual information here. And I, I often just think that this is more like something where we're actually in school and learning a lot. We're gleaning not only from the characters, their experience with one another, but we're also learning a whole lot of things as we go along. Well, I, it, I, I actually enjoy books like that. You know, mm-hmm. sort of what I had in my head was something like Michael Crichton, who would take a, a cutting-edge 
scientific idea, you know, or two or three of them and, and sort of make, you know, make a story revolve around those things. And he'd put a bibliography in the back, you know, to basically establish the fact that, Hey, you know, the, the stuff that we're, that's going on in the book here is, is real. And I, I liked that. And so I wanted to, uh, to mimic that. And it's, I think early on with the facade, people sort of didn't, didn't get it. They, they kind of, kind of thought it was marketing shtick, but it's not. I mean, all of the data points in the book are real. Hmm. What you know, the, the the fiction is what I do with them, you know, and how I how I have them intersect with each other, and of course, you know what I mean. The characters aren't aren't real people, uh, other than the ones that that might you know appear in some historical reference, sure. uh, that sort of thing. But um, yeah, that it it really is what it is. You know, it, all the data points are real, but the fiction is how what I do with them, you know, how I, how I connect them and use that f- uh, to propel a plot. And it's the same thing with the portent. And, and again, the portent is much wider because what, what that did was because of the way the facade ends, and I, I don't want to say anything, but you know how it ends. Right. Um, I wanted the story to continue, but I wanted to pick up certain threads in the facade and I, and I left some, some things unanswered that I wanted to go back and, and that was deliberate, but I wanted to go back and, and, and address them. But I wanted it to be the thing that sort of explains why the facade was what it was, why all that happened, and, and, and have that be sort of a gateway into a much grander conspiracy that really, really would involve uh, deep questions of faith, um, hmm. really the, the nature of the faith itself. Uh, the portent gave me the opportunity to essentially be the intelligent evil mastermind uh, and and I I would literally sit there, you know, when I was uh, going through the material and coming up with with the storyline. It's like, okay, what would what would my objectives be if if I were again intelligent evil at this kind of level? What would my objectives be? And then how do I get there? What could I use to work the plan to get there? And and what happens in the portent is a lot of it is about giving people what they believe, what they expect, especially in sort of canned popular Bible interpretation, uh, using people's expectations against them, against their faith, so that when something happens, the, what people do with it will be predictable. Mm. It's about moving the herd to the next square and then the next square and the square after that and, and creating a, a concatenation of events that will move the herd to where I want them to be uh, because I have something waiting at, at the other end, you know, at the, at the end of the road. And, and by the time you get to the end of the road, you will be predisposed to think about who you are, uh, who God is, uh, all these spiritual questions. You'll be, you'll, be, you'll be prone to think about those things the way I want you to think about them. Mm. And you'll believe that you're embracing what's true but you're actually believing a lie, wow. but you don't know it. Hmm. And so that was, that was how I approached the whole uh, scope uh, of the portent. I was going to say, Mike, one of the things that I picked up, and you just sort of hit on it a bit there, from my reading of the portent, is that whenever the villain is present, it seems to just drip and ooze with evil and malice. Um, I can't really say how you did that, but that's what I picked up when I was reading it. Um, it's definitely a definitely a skill um, because I don't read a lot of fiction, but whenever the villain in, in the portent was present, um, I felt, you know, it, the page is just dripping with evil and malice. But I was just going to say a quick personal overview and just my subjective view of the portent was that um, when I was reading it, it, I was reading it and I could see this like a movie playing in my head. Now, I don't mean an overblown, overdone Hollywood movie, but I mean it was like a movie. It's got everything in it. Uh, It's got action. You know, you have these action sequences that are well written and that I could follow and could see in my mind what was going on. So there's plenty of action. There's intrigue. Uh, There is this malevolent figure that really um, stands out to me um, almost for the most part in the book. But also there's a a romantic part to the book. Um, There is a romance going on, and I'm sure Andy's keen to talk about that a bit later on. (laughs) 
<laughs> and um, but the portent is actually more than all of those things, and you have touched on them. But I'd really like to see this book in the hands of anyone that's interested in uh, conspiracy theories, fringe or so-called fringe Christianity. UFOs, eugenics, uh, mind control, angelology, Nazis, ancient texts, ancient history, the occult, you know, and the list goes on and on. I've left a dozen things off there of uh, topics that are in this book, (laughs) and it's just Mm -hmm. jam-packed with all these things, but they're well done. They're not just like thrown in there, you know, as a, oh, we'll just throw this in here because, you know, this is what people are talking about. They're there for a reason, and as you said, you are taking some uh, people on a journey. But I wanted to say to you a couple of things, ask you a couple of things as well, but um, there is one thing in the book. I'm a student of history, ancient history, and as long as I can remember, I I have been interested in ancient and modern history. I just love it. I love reading about it, which is why I don't read much fiction. But the one thing I did learn, and I wanted to ask you, and I hope this is not taken us somewhere else, but I had no idea the Nazis had a plan to nuke New York in the Second World War. Yeah, yeah, it is is one of those sort of... Uh, peripheral items that are mm. are lost you know to mainstream history the whole yeah the whole uh, effort I, I i can mention this because it, it will be disconnected from from the the plot of the portent even though it's in mm. there so i'm, I'm not going to ruin mm. anything but the whole um, effort to produce fissionable uranium without a reactor um you will actually see the elements of that process that that comes to light in the book uh you'll actually see that like in the majestic documents yeah. uh, the, the the ufo documents and so there there are these you know people are sort of used to you know com- talking about the nazis and pay operation paperclip and ufos but yes. but they often they often miss sort of the the documentary basis for a lot of these trajectories that that live somewhere else whether they're in documents like like the majestic documents who which have a you know obviously a questionable provenance and authenticity but all of that is built on stuff that was published you know by german scientists and you know th- there are just things like that that they were working on they understood they did have knowledge of and and yeah there there's actually a, a very it's a small paper trail you know there's there's the map that i reproduce in the book uh, about the drop zone in new york but yeah. You know, thankfully, of course, they never did that. But there was a reason why they were thinking about that. You know, given another year, maybe maybe even less than a year, uh, they could have experimented with that. They could have just tried it uh, to see, uh, again, really alter the course of the war. I mean, they only have to do it once for it to have tremendous propaganda value because uh, they could always say that they have more, even if they only did it once. Did it once. close. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, I just find that one um, fascinating for me personally because I didn't know that. And I did think to myself, wow, that would have changed the course of uh, the Second World War greatly. But, um, you know, not to divert too much because it's not a major part of the book, but it was just one thing that stood out to me because I didn't know. But just recently, I think it might have been as late as last night, uh, Andy and I were talking about the character development that goes into the previous book and this one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't want people to get the idea that it's just about facts, but um, but I just grabbed onto that one because I f- found that fascinating. But the characters in this book, you come to know each and every one of them. You come to learn something about their background. And um, Andy really picked up on uh, a lot of those things. So, Andy, did you want to speak a bit about what we spoke about last night? Like, you know how the variety of characters have all got this thing in their background that's explained? Yeah, well, look, I mean, this is the one thing that I really actually loved about the book. And I'm I'm also not a huge reader of fiction, actually. I'm I'm not a big fan of romance novels either, especially not soppy ones. And um, this, (laughs) thankfully, was not that at all. And that's what I loved about it. (laughs) Um, I just loved that. I just thought I, I could relate to so much of of these characters and maybe where they were coming from, particularly those who are in the forefront. And you see this kind of theme of almost coming out of, uh, well, let's just say a really 
hurt and difficult backgrounds um, Mm -hmm. where the natural things that would come out of that are present, you know, from anger to mistrust and all of those kind of things. But I I said to to Garth, you know, one of the, the overarching themes that really struck me, particularly out of the facade, is this theme of redemption, and mm-hmm. um, it was just so beautiful. There's one moment, and I don't want to give it too much away, but there's just one moment where there's a very awkward scene between uh, Melissa and Brian in the book. and As um, most of them are. As they are. <laughs> all very awkward. But um, and, and you expect him. You expect him to react in a very certain way, and he doesn't. And I think for me, I, I said to Garth, that truly was the moment where I saw Brian in a different light, and I just thought this guy truly does have a genuine understanding of redemption and love. It's like he could see past something. And mm-hmm. so without giving it all away, I think for me that was such a turning point because it hit me in the face. And it was just so real. Um, and the sense of redemption that even through all that brokenness and even through all the hurt that both of them would have experienced and others within the book, um, truly there is this this threat. Now, I don't know if that was something that you purposed to be there, but I just thought it's it's one of those underlying things that even as Christians, you know, that is part of our own story. And mm-hmm. so even that's kind of come through. Well, it it is intentional. The The other major sort of overarching thing that is just really you know present in in so many respects in the book is providence right so i th- i think i think providence and redemption you know are really the the key things that drive the character story amid all the all the other stuff that's thrown at them right um and i you know i think that's what life is especially the christian life but people understand the whole concept of redemption uh, maybe not as fully as a Christian would or should, but but even if you're not, I mean, you p- people understand what that is and 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 the value of it, whether they you know sort of live it out consistently or not. They they want it for themselves, right. uh, you know, re- regardless. But yeah, the, what I I wanted the characters to, to to be real. They're not they're not superheroes. They're they're normal. They've got hangups. Right. You know, Brian is just. Brian is basically me in high school, early college, sort of the the emotional state. Uh, he, he's he's got real self esteem problems that sort of just color the way he looks at anything that you'd call a relationship. You know, again, this because in in the story, you know, his parents, are, you know, were killed, you know, years earlier, and basically he's he's alone. He's sort of marginalized. He he tries to do the right thing and pays dearly for it on most occasions. Right. Uh, but but he he does what he what he thinks he ought to do, or at least he tries to do that. And uh, again, suffers for it. But on some level, that's okay. You know, it it'll get a little bit better tomorrow, and you know we'll somehow climb out of this hole. And and you know he he's actually you know tries to be optimistic about things, but does not have. He doesn't have a whole lot going for him because you know he's of, of who he is and just again awkward. He he's not he's not good at relationships, you know, not in a malicious way, but just in in ineptitude way. Right. And Melissa, of course, is the polar opposite. I mean, she she is just driven by rage, you know, in in the facade, and you know, she she gets confronted by that in in ways that you expect and ways you don't expect, and. Yeah. Uh, again, it's what she needs, as as uncomfortable and as painful as it is. And he, you know, Brian is is more or less. He can see that he can. Again, just tries to do the right thing, and whether she's going to hate him more for it, oh well. But you know, there is this turning point in in her attitude, not just toward him, but just toward what she is. I mean, she yeah. starts to you know be able to confront what she has turned into. And that that continues into the portent because the you know again of the way the one the one ends and the, and the second one they are they're just thrust into a, a pretty awkward situation but that becomes the point of origin for for how they they both develop with respect to each other and just generally. Hmm. 
I said to um, Garth as well, I've, I've really come to love these characters and um, I've started to really care about them. So please <laughs> look after <laughs> them. <laughs> Andy does. Andy does love these people, so you'll have to take care of them, as you said, Mike. Um, one, uh, going back to one of the bigger picture things that I found, found in the book that I think is relevant today, and I, I, with your permission, Mike, I'd like to read a little bit of the book, if that's okay. That won't sure. give anything about the characters away, um, so relax, Andy, it's cool. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> The group of people that the main characters, uh, Melissa and Brian, end up uh, becoming acquainted with, I don't want to say too much because, you know, as you're reading it, you don't realise. But anyway, this group of people that they become acquainted with, they have a certain uh, viewpoint to what I term the postmodern church. And if I just read a little bit, and I'd I'd like to ask you a question about it, Mike. So um, just reading from the book, it says, um, just so we're clear, Neff continued, we aren't anti-church. I think it's more accurate to say we're ambivalent toward them. We're glad when God's work gets done when it gets done, but we aren't waiting for large organisations to plod through committee decisions. We despise bureaucracy. We also trust ourselves more than organised Christianity, Ward chimed in. To be blunt about it, we've come to doubt the character of the church at large. We think it's worldly. Christians, especially in this country, seem to equate popularity with excellence or God's blessing. More energy goes into appearance than permanence. We're just done with all of that. Now, I think that would be the position of a lot of people, uh, believers in this postmodern era. Uh, People are bailing out of churches at a high rate of numbers and for the most part, as far as I know, into home cell groups and things like that. And I just wanted to ask you if it's okay to ask you, Mike, has this been part of your experience or is it you just trying to tell us something that we should learn from in this segment? Like, you know, have you experienced this yourself? Well, I I think both of those things are true. Um, It is part of my experience uh, in that it is my prevailing attitude. Mm -hmm. Uh, Having said that, I mean, I I do go to church. You know, I, I go because I think, I think the church needs needs Christians to be missionaries to the church, um, right. and that that's one of the ways those things can be accomplished. Because you know, if if everybody who, you know, is sort of dissatisfied with it and and wants to be more serious, if they all leave, well, then mm-hmm. you know the, the 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 things that they can do in a, in a positive way to influence what happens in this thing we call church, is just going to disappear. So I, I try to be useful, you know, in an organized context, but I don't marry any of my satisfaction or any of my sense of purpose to it. Right. Uh, so in that respect, it's real. But on, on the other hand, I, I did want people to think about this. Mm-hmm. And th- th- that's actually a good selection to read because one of the things I think we need to think about is not just theoretical, hey, what could the church be better if it wasn't the church? I mean, that, that, that's a nice yeah. theoretical discussion. But I think, and I, I wouldn't say I, I suspect it's going to happen in my lifetime, but I, I expect in my kids' lifetime uh, that the church to be not only marginalized uh, the way it is now culturally. I do think we are in a post, not just a postmodern, but a post-Christian uh, era. Mm-hmm. I think we are veering into that. I think Christianity, serious Christianity, uh, biblical Christianity will be criminalized uh, mm. in, in the sense that you can't take certain positions without uh, having approval, you know, legally to operate. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so I, I do think the church will will have to go underground, uh, the, the serious church again. And so what? How, I wanted people to start thinking about that because essentially what you have in the portent is you have a a group that has that status voluntarily, and Again, they they just want stuff to get done. Yes, you know, we're, we're we we're all of the same mind. We we know how to do it. We're willing to 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 risk ourselves to do certain things, and we're just going to get stuff done. And you know, Brian, of course, doesn't know uh, any of this going going into his encounter, uh, yes. even after a series of encounters. You know, with with yes. what's going on here. But but by the end, I mean, it, it's clear he. He's going to have a home, is really what it amounts to. 
And yeah. he is, again, he's isolated, he's disconnected, and he has been that way for a very long time. So this is going to be good for him, even on a, on a very personal, basic level. But it's, it's going to, in, in the third book, I mean, it, it's going to help define him and sort of help him, I hate to say it, but, but sort of mature uh, a, a little bit in, in other areas. And, and it's going to do the same you know, for Melissa as well, but just in a different way. Uh, they're, they're going to, they're going to have a home, you know, in, in this thing that they earlier in their lives, they wanted for different reasons. And then, and, and it, it evaporated for different reasons. Um, but I wanted Christians to start thinking about that. What would it look like? You know, should we start thinking about contingency plans, <laughs> you know, to, to the way things are now? And I think we should. That makes a whole lot of sense to me. I still attend a, a regular church, and I'm very happy at the church I'm at, but I have had less than uh, fulfilling times in previous churches. Can I just say that, and we'll just leave it there. But I'm at a very good church now with a very good pastor, um, and there's expository teaching you know, direct from the Bible, and I'm happy with that. But I could understand where a lot of people would be dissatisfied. And as I said, I do know people who already are, won't attend another formal church again and who are in cell groups and that's where they'll be. So I, I thought that was a good thing for you to bring up in there. But it also leads us to another section and I just wanted to read one more and I'll have a question for you because I, I think this will connect nicely. It's about the viewpoint of the scriptures, right? So um, I'll just read it. Brian leaned forward. Well, this might sound odd, but I don't struggle with it because I committed myself a long time ago to let the Bible be what it is in its original context and say what it says to its original audience. I don't look at it as something it isn't. God made it what it is, and I'm not second-guessing him. You'll have to unpack that, Neff said, at least for me. The Bible is a Mediterranean-centered document produced by the people living between the second millennium and the first. Those people knew nothing about any modern sciences like biology, anthropology, or linguistics. The Bible was never meant to be a science textbook for modern people by God's design. God was the one who made the decision to prompt people to living at the time in that place with the knowledge of that worldview to write what he wanted preserved for posterity. Now, there's a lot in there that we could probably unpack, but again... It's uh, something that I um, had had to come to learn for myself that this is actually true. Uh, a lot of us live with the traditions of our uh, churches, even our families, and sometimes it's really difficult to let some of those things go and just let the scriptures be what they are and accept them for what they are. And I know that a lot of people will struggle with that, but again, and I'm I'm pretty certain of the an answer, Mike, uh, because I've read a lot of your stuff that you are on your websites and that. But this would be your viewpoint, wouldn't it? This is this is you speaking, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I again, Brian is 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 my mouthpiece for these, you know, these sorts of things. And I, you know, I this actually does tie in with your earlier question. I have actually lived this one. You know, when you commit yourself to do that. And again, it's not that you're being hostile to tradition. It's not that you're you're trying to again be the bull in the china closet or or anything like that. Uh, but when you when you do commit yourself to just hey, this is what it says, just let it be what it is. There are people who will react against that because we we've sort of been trained to think you know Christians talk all the time about interpreting the Bible in context, and usually what they mean is the first few verses before the verse I'm looking at and the first few verses after, you know, yes. or they're thinking the history of Christianity. I have to interpret the Bible through the history of Christianity. And none of those things uh, are, are accurate. The history of Christianity is not the biblical context. The context of the Bible to interpret it according to is the one that produced it. And when you say stuff like that, and then you, you take that again as a sort of a guiding uh, hermeneutic, you know, a way to guide interpretation. There are people who react against it. I mean, I, I have lost, uh, I lost a teaching job uh, because of this sort of thing. So, you know, back in the facade, when Brian, you know, when we start to learn about, you know, why you're really highly credentialed, what are you doing here? <laughs> I mean, and and he, you know, he gets into that story. Yeah, I've lived that one, and 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 also with respect to churches too, um, but. I think it'd be the wrong thing to react against it as though it, it, it's sort of some sort of enemy. I think it is something that 
you know, this is the thing that, that Jesus died for. It's this thing we call the church. It's the body of Christ. So the, we ought to try, try to do what we can to redeem the thing, you know, to, to make it be what it, what it ought to be. And if it basically kicks us in the teeth for it, well, you know, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll try it again somewhere else, you know. And, and again, that's my attitude that, that, that comes across in the character. So it is, it is me. I mean, the books allow me to, to say some of those things. And I, I say things like that, like you said, on my website. You know, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty open about that. Um, but the fiction is a good way. And because of, of what Brian has to, you know, teach people and what he has to interact with for the sake of the story, that, that's a lesson that can, can come across through this avenue as well. Yeah. Just going along with that, you start the facade with really what leads to your dissertation, and that is um, Psalm 82, and how mm-hmm. God has taken his stand in the divine council. Among the gods, he passes judgment. You are all gods, son of the Most High, all of you. And as you're going through, this flavor is actually what also is unfolded. Um, and I was actually really wanting to chat a little bit about this idea of the supernatural, because we often get this extreme in the church today, maybe some have taken this idea of playing, if I can put it that way, with the supernatural too far. But then there's the opposite extreme where people don't even want to discuss it anymore. It's like a taboo. And we just mm-hmm. want to stay very, very focused. And, and you really take this and start to look at what really lies behind Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, and spiritual forces. And these are things a lot of Christians don't even look at anymore. They think of the devil. He's there. Yes, the devil gets blamed for a lot of things, but they don't seem this unseen realm, which I know is also part of you know your dissertation and other books that are coming out. So perhaps we could lead mm-hmm. to that as well. Do you want to maybe just chat about that a little bit? Yeah, I I think that the the church, you know, it's easy to pick on the the one side of it because it, it, you know, honestly has become a caricature. Right. And, you know, the the sort of charismatic wing of it, you know, that, you know, there's basically there's a a demon that makes that behind every rock. There's a demon behind every sin. I I can blame my behavior on Satan and XYZ demon and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean that that that's the one extreme, and it's sensationalist, it's experience driven, all that sort of stuff. But on the other side, you know, which is again my my own uh, heritage uh, spiritually, the the context in which you know I was in when I first became a Christian, and and that again the non charismatic wing I think suffers from what I call selective supernaturalism, mm. uh, which is another way of saying rationalism. And again, I'm not saying that good thinking should be irrational. Theology is irrational. <laughs> you know, I'm not. Th- I'm not saying that at all. What right. what what I'm saying by that is, you know, we, because we're modern, we are prone again to think like moderns. Like, you know, isn't that profound? You know, it, it's something obvious. But as Christians, the way that has worked out is is we all you know we we tend to embrace the things we need to embrace. In under this supernatural umbrella, without which it would make no sense to call ourselves Christians. Mm-hmm. So it's Trinity, it's Jesus. Of course, you know we've, we've got God in there. We got we have to have angels and demons, you know. But but they're sort of just there. They they're not engaged in really doing anything, and and that's where we we sort of draw this line. So you know it cuts off a lot of of the description you get in the New Testament. Uh, in, in terms of what you're sort of dealing with in the unseen realm, and it also sort of neuters the 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 powers outside the Trinity uh, from doing the things that Scripture describes them doing or even being. Hmm. You know, we, we we've lost this sense that that uh, you know darkness really does believe that they have something to win. Uh, at, you know, we, we, we sort of try to button everything down, you know, in, in, in these definitions of sovereignty that we use that, you know, everything is sort of predetermined and, and you know, God has predetermined everything. So they can't really have any real power here. You know, there, there's no real contest going on. Mm. You know, when Paul talks about that, it's just that, oh, they're there 
and they don't like us, they're hostile to us, but there's no agenda. Uh, there's, there's no even, even competition among themselves. Again, there, there's, no, there's no sense that they have, you know, have a plan and they're working the plan. I mean, all these things that just fall by the wayside. Uh, because as we diminish that, we think that we're elevating you know, God and, and Jesus and the Trinity. And, and that's really a, a misperception on, on a number of levels. And so the, you know, the upcoming book, it's going to be out in March, uh, Unseen Realm, is really designed to, you know, to, to get at that, uh, mm-hmm. to really sort of expose the inadequacies and the deficiencies and really the, the lack of scriptural support and the depth of scriptural support in the other direction hmm. um, when it comes to this whole conversation you know, about the unseen world. Yeah, that's exciting. I, I really am looking forward to it. Um, I did get a chance to read The Myth That Was True when it was still just in working form. And, well, it's um, actually readable now. That. Oh, really? It's readable? <laughs> yes, it's readable oh, now. <laughs> I'm so, so looking forward to it. I really am. And um, I also wanted to just ask you if I uh, dare you not to bore me with the Bible, which is another book that you put out quite recently. Um, I haven't seen a Kindle version of that yet. Is, would, that, would that be coming out sometime soon? The, the short answer is I don't know, and I have asked before, but I have okay. not followed up on that. So if you send me an email uh, to, to jar that, I will, I'll rattle the cage again on that. That would be great. And it's easier, obviously, living in Cape Town to get Kindle than to buy right. it from Amazon. So, gee, over to you. Any other questions there? Oh, I have many, many questions, but I realise <laughs> we, we, we're coming up, coming up to uh, just up to the uh, hour point. I was going to say I'd, I'm really keen, as I said earlier, for people, uh, that list of interests that I gave for people to get this book, The Port, and, and read it. But also I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking they're probably going to have to have the facade first for me because I've only read The Port and I think there's a lot of important things in there. What I thought, one of the things that you tackled, and, um, and not too deeply, but it, it was tackled in the book, and um, like, I, like I said to you earlier, Mike, um, we, we, um, we like to have a bit of fun along with our serious uh, investigations, but I don't really want to lose half of our audience by going into this topic too deeply. But I, I thought it was interesting that you'd tackled the, the topic of the rapture and um, even termed it as a 19th century contrivance. <laughs> Would that be your... <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I can't help myself, but... <laughs> Uh, um, Andy actually asked me not to bring this up. <laughs> we had our... <laughs> she said, "Look, there you can were at talk least about three that. things we weren't going to bring up, Mike." But here we go. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. No, honestly, honestly, without a word of a lie, she said you can talk about that, but do not mention OSAS. You know, um, <laughs> and so I was only allowed to talk about the rapture. Um, we'd agreed on that, but um, I, I just oh, thought that was very. Um, I, I enjoyed seeing that in there uh, because it is a real hot button issue, and and has been for a long time. I mean, uh, it, it does go back a long way. But if you think back to the eighties when it was really just in everything, every sermon, every book, everything was about the rapture and and the return of um, of Jesus. But I thought that was a great one to tackle. Well, Would it, that be your worldview? I would never say that the idea of a rapture is impossible. I would say it's very right. unlikely. Um, right. Okay. And, and so, in, in in that sense, yeah, I, I think you know you, you really don't run into this before the 19th century, and and mm. it is it is a very idiosyncratic uh, approach to scripture. Again, that you know for those for those who aren't, aren't familiar with with my thoughts on, you know, I did a long series on my blog, you know, a couple of years ago mm. called. Why? Uh, why an obsession with eschatology is a waste of time? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, it was like fifteen it, yes. parts or whatever it was, and and one yeah. of those is you know gets into the, into this the whole question of a rapture. Well, it it, it boils down to are you a splitter or a joiner? And mm. and what I mean by that is, for instance, in the Gospels, everybody's familiar with the fact that if if you read the three the, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, <clears throat> and John is. Ninety percent of John is unique, so I mean that mm-hmm. that's even really you know far farther afield. But even if you take the three that are are pretty close, 
everybody's sort of familiar with the fact that you can read an episode in Jesus' life or a conversation he had, and there are differences between all three. And so our, our sort of guiding approach to that is, is to harmonize them, to, to join them into one coherent picture. And my question you know, for many years has been, well, why don't we do that with eschatology? Because the, the, the only way you really get a rapture is to, is to look at passages that are dealing with, let's call it broadly, the second coming. And this one over here has Jesus coming and touching the earth, and this one doesn't. He's just in the air. Well, hmm. for many years, the, the guiding method was just like it is with the synoptics. You bring those things together, you join them, you harmonize them. Well, the whole idea of a rapture is based on splitting them, keeping them separate so that you have two events uh, from the same, again, sort of bucket of passages. And, and that really only started in the late 19th century. So it really comes down to a decision that you make as a Bible reader or a Bible interpreter. Am I going to be a splitter or a joiner? Am I going to harmonize or keep these descriptions separate and make them separate events? Because if you, if you harmonize the second coming passages throughout Scripture, you do not have a rapture. You only get it if you pluck out certain ones that you think your perception tells you don't quite match the others. And that's how you get two events. And I think that's inherently artificial um, in, in the way you know, it, it works. But again, I'm, I'd have to claim omniscience to, to be able to say, well, I, I know 100% you know, certainty that that isn't what we're supposed to do. I think it's very unlikely, though, uh, that that's what we're supposed to do. And you'll notice right. in the portent, you know, in the, yes, in the portent, that, that's one of the things that, again, the manipulator, uh, the, the evil mastermind says, well, this is a useful idea. Mm. And we know a, a, a very large you know, portion of Christianity is predisposed to believe this. So how might it be useful? What could we do with that? Again, and it's all about manipulating a circumstance so that certain people and 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 the, and the villain is targeting you know Christians in certain ways and in, in different ways to get get them all sort of herded in the same place you know ultimately yes. end up at the same in the same situation but he has a contemptible attitude toward Brian especially um, Brian he I mean, he basically says the only reason you're alive is because you're entertainment for me hmm. yes. you know there there are five or six ways that, that that we could work our end game this is the one that's just the most interesting because it's the one where I get to hurt you you know, and and it, you're, essentially it, he leads them <laughs> down this road and basically says, yes. I, I want you alive so that you can see what's happening and you'll know that it's all a deception, but you won't be able yes. to do anything about it. And then we'll dispose yes. of you after yes. that sinks in. And I'll say it again, but it is the uh, most evil character that I've read in any <laughs> fiction um, that I've <laughs> that that I've actually recognised as wow, this is true evil, yeah. uh, and yeah, like I've read a, a fair bit of fiction in the past. I don't, I don't much now, but but really that character just drips malevolence, you know. But no, look, the rapture issue, Mike. I, I, I look, I'm not a hundred percent sure where I personally stand on it because I think I've held you know all the views that there are available. <laughs> <laughs> and, right. and and well, you and can make over, a new one. <laughs> Have, have a hand well, there, at it. There, there you go. But um, and and really, I do, I'm not trying to. I really wouldn't want to annoy people, you know, because I know people have strong views on it. Uh, but I, I really think if for another reason for them to read this book is to read that. You've actually explained it there, what you've written, but to read that and investigate that for themselves as an alternate to, you know, say pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath and all of those views. I actually do have a view, uh, but but like I said, I'm confessing that I've held many of them. But um, <laughs> uh, any any further questions from, from you, Andy? Oh, my goodness. There's probably you wanted number. to talk about OSAS. <laughs> no, you know what? Um, let's avoid OSAS for now. Although, Mike, I will say that um, I think both Garth and I agree with your view, by the way. So um, we'll just leave it there. And then people, if they really want to know what we think, they can go and read your book and discover for themselves. That's a good thing. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that, that's good advice, you know, to say that. I mean, it, when it comes to prophecy and, and Brian, again, because he's, he's me, basically mm. says, look, you know, 
prophecy is deliberately cryptic. You know, darkness wasn't supposed to figure this out the first time around, and they didn't. Yeah. You know, they, they, they knew, you know, well, they knew the Son of God was here. You know, that's evident from the Gospels, but nobody knew the plan. If they had known the plan, I mean, I take very seriously what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. You know, had the rulers of this world known, you know, what would have happened, really that, that the, the whole idea of killing the Messiah was actually the key, the linchpin thing that had to happen hmm. to hmm. to engage their own undoing. You know, had the rulers of this world known, they, they would never have done it. Right. But they were duped. And so why would, why would we think that the the prophecies that are scattered you know through the old new testament still that that we perceive right or wrong you know are, are still sort of out there to be fulfilled why would we think we could nail that down hmm. in a system you know what what sort of hubris does it take you know to to say i've really got this whole thing figured out because it is littered it is riddled with ambiguities at every level, in, in basically mm. every passage that factors into prophecy. And my position is that's deliberate. Mm. And that's going to be mm. something that, again, plays up in, into, into a third book because both sides are going to have to make assumptions. Good and evil are going to have to make assumptions about what are people thinking? How do we get them to think a certain thing? So they're going to have to sort of, you know, even evil is going to have to sort of judge where is the maximum impact it, what interpretation will get us farther down the road? And if we understand that, then this is, the, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to work the system. This is how we're going to work uh, the, the Christian mind in this direction. And so not only do the good guys have to figure out what the bad guys are thinking, but they have to wonder, are they right or mm-hmm. are they not? Because right. if yes. they're wrong, then, then that, that's going to be a little, a little crack in the armor that, that could possibly be exploited. It's going to be a very sort of psychological, spiritual chess match, um, you know, as, as things progress forward. And it's not like the, it's not like Brian and, and his friends think, oh, we're, we're going to win this. They, they, they know that, that the evil, the villain is right, that, that we, we cannot win this battle. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have a purpose uh, for us. And we're just going to make it hard for you. We're going to do everything we possibly can to not make it easy to have you scrap what you're doing and start all over again. As we wind this up now, and um, we're grateful for your time, Mike, uh, because we do know it's uh, Friday evening there, but is there any any scoops on the next novel? Can you give us any insight where it might go? Well, I, I, I think it's going to have a strong uh, Egyptian theme. I guess I can, I can say this. I have a lot of research and reading to do on mm. Egyptian mathematics and certain places that are significant in Old Kingdom star mythology, uh, things like that. So they're, they're, there's, it's not going to be exclusively oriented to Egyptian material, but it's right. about time we, we get into that. I, I should have said this earlier. I really enjoyed um, how you touched on the Minoans because uh, I really enjoy that part of ancient history, and so I really enjoyed that. So. It would be good, uh, yes, to see something because there is no mention of Egypt in in the portent, is there? There's Minoan culture and uh, Anatolia and uh, Mesopotamia, but we d- you didn't go into Egypt at all, did you? Right, no, no, and it, it's so, it's, okay, it's cool. about time we we turn some yeah. attention to to that. Yes, that's very cool. Well, I, I do realize that. I mean, you left us on just one cliffhanger, basically, in the facade. Mm. Mm. And you were very kind to leave us on quite a few cliffhangers in the yes. uh, portent. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I said to G, it's, it's almost cruel to leave us for years. Do, do you have any <laughs> idea how long it's going to take to um, bring out the sequel? There won't be this, this lengthy interval uh, you know, between books two and three. I, I'm already gathering uh, material, essentially you know, giving myself homework and uh, – you know, thinking about what I what I want to do because th- there are there are historical topics I want to cover. There's sort of occult mythological topics I want to cover. There are theological topics I want to cover. There's you know what what else to do with the UFO stuff, and that's mm-hmm. sort of a never ending pool. Uh, you know, for for all sorts of things. So I'll get six or seven areas. I mean, I, I actually map this out uh, like in a flow chart of, of things that I want to touch on 
issues, questions, topics, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm already gathering data to do that. I would like to think that I could start um, the, the, the third book. I don't have a title for it yet. Um, but I'd like to think I could start it sometime during the summer hmm. uh, and you know, just sort of map it out and, and actually be able to begin writing in the summer. Oh, that's very cool. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah that's very cool. And I, I should just add, and I'm still going through it myself, but there is the, a handbook to the portent. I'm not sure if there was a handbook to the facade. There may have been. But I just I noticed that there is a handbook available uh, to the portent, which I am starting to go through. Really great info in there. So would you encourage people to go and get that too? Yep. People should not read through the handbook to the portent until they've read the portent because right. there will be spoilers in yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There was a lot of handbook-like material uh, in the facade. Now that's available for free on the web. If people go to uh, readthefacade.com, there's a link on that page to the bibliographic material that used to be in the facade. We took it out to reduce page count and, and keep the, you know, the price down. The handbook to the portent is... You know, serves a dual purpose. Not only is it bibliographic material, basically, you know, where all the breadcrumb trails generate from um, all the research that went into it. But the the portent ends with a postscript. Uh, there is a riddle that evolves from or derives from the story, and there's one clue in the postscript, and there's a second clue in the handbook. So whoever can solve the riddle will get a, a character named after them in the third book. So the the handbook, you know, is is there for that reason too. Um, yes, a- Andy was super excited about that because she's keen to crack it. Uh, I think she wants her name <laughs> in the. <laughs> you have to think beyond the obvious. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when you read both clues, you will be led to a, a very obvious thing, but there will be disconnects between the, the storyline and that obvious thing that you have to resolve. Oh, man. Uh, that's about all I can say. Thanks. <laughs> no, that's really cool. <laughs> the characters are going to have to do this too. Ah, So, okay. you know, there, there are just, again, circumstances at the end of the portent that they're going to have to think through. They're, they're going to have to try to make sense of the way certain, you know, the fact that certain things happen. Hmm. And this is actually part of it. Wow. So we'll oh, see how really our cool. readers do too. Well, I love the fact that you did name um, some of your characters after people you'd known. Mm-hmm. I think of uh, Mike Bennett, of course, our beloved Dr. Future. We just love him to bits. And a number of others, Guy Malone. So I just thought that was wonderful. But I was going to ask you maybe just as a last uh, little question. How many Fergusons do you actually know? Because I actually know quite a few. Have anyone ever complained that this uh, <laughs> character is <laughs> so no, malevolent I, and based on know. their surname? I don't know any. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably and, a good that's, thing. <laughs> that's part of the reason. Yeah, that, I don't. I don't know any. Uh, I I can't remember exactly how I came up with the, the first and last name there, but no, I don't. I don't know any. Uh, um, I mean, there there is one character in the book that is named after a reader mm-hmm. uh, because this person had read the book, you know, six or seven times, and when I found that out, I thought, boy, you know that. That deserves some kind of medal, you know, but wow. I'll, yeah. I'll name yeah. a character. After you. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great idea. I just, I love it. I was going to say, we might wind this up now, Mike, but um, thanks for your time. Can you just tell our audience where they can uh, find you on the internet and also where they can get both books, The Facade and The Portent? My main website is www.dr, as in doctor, drmsh, those are my initials, drmsh.com. If you go to that, uh, that website, that will take you to all of my blogs. It'll take you to both books. You can either click on the images in the slider when they come by or there's drop-down menus there. But that will, that's sort of the nerve center. That'll take you to everything. Or you could go to uh, readthefacade.com or readtheportent.com. Or you could search for them on Amazon too. Excellent. And we'll have links in the show notes when this show goes up to um, your website and probably both of those. Would it be, Andy? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll put up as much as we can. That would be great. Great. 
Well, Dr. Mike Heiser, thank you for coming on to Like Flint Radio. Um, we really appreciate your time. We love the book. I want people to read this one. Believers and unbelievers, uh, anybody interested in those topics I've talked about earlier and that we've discussed here, you're going to love this book. You will be left hanging um, for the next one, and we hope it's not too long before it comes out. So thanks for coming on, Mike. We really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much. It was fun. Thank you. Okay. God bless. God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our show. You can find us on the web at www.lightflintradio.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at mail at lightflintradio.com. That's M-A-I-L at lightflintradio.com.